Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Job chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each other. On this day, and when they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Good morning, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here and a part of our preaching team. And it's a great privilege to get to kick off our new series together. When I was in college, I studied to become a teacher. Didn't really know what I wanted to teach. Um, Did physics for a while, ended up with math, of all things. But I was always fascinated with how people learn and then how best to teach them. It's the study of pedagogy. It's the science of how to teach, how people learn. As a Christian, I've noticed that Jesus was a master teacher. I mean, the best. Think about how he taught. If Jesus wanted to communicate information, you could do so very simply. Communicate an idea. For example, uh, anxiety. I want to teach you about anxiety. And worrying is bad. Don't do it. Lesson learned. That's not how Jesus taught. That wasn't his pedagogy. Jesus was a master teacher. He, he often taught with stories, actually. Very memorable, sticky, called parables. And so instead of just communicating the point about anxiety, what did Jesus do? He, he used uh, stories and then sometimes object lessons. And he pointed to lilies and birds 
And he illustrated vividly for us the Father's care for the lowly plants and animals, and then how much more should you not worry? He used object lessons. In order to communicate God's love for you, he could have said, God loves you, and he will seek you intensely. That's true. But he chose to use stories and, and parables. And so Jesus taught there was a shepherd with 100 sheep, and he left the 99 to seek the one. And it sticks in our heads. There's a story to communicate an idea. Jesus was a master teacher. He was brilliant in how he taught. Another tactic that Jesus used was to take common sayings of his day and just tweak them a little bit. Something you already know that he tweaks to help communicate an idea. He would say it this way. He would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. If you've read the Gospels, maybe you've seen that before. I want to try a tactic of Jesus today as we kick off our series. Same tactic. You ready? You have heard it said that nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. Have you heard that? But Jesus says to you, almost nothing is certain in life except suffering. Oh, picked the wrong week. <laughs> is that true? Almost nothing certain in this life except suffering. The reason I say that and feel confident in it is because Jesus himself promised it. Look, look at this, this is Jesus' words in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation. The NIV translation says, in this world you will have trouble, trials, difficulties, challenges, suffering. Not you may, you will. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Nothing in life is certain except death and taxes, but Jesus says to you, nothing in life is certain except suffering. Do you know that to be true in your life? My guess this morning is that you're in one of three categories. Either right now you are suffering, and you know that to be true, or you have suffered in your life in the past, and you know that to be true, or you look like you're 12, like me, and you're too young, and you haven't suffered yet, but you will. You will. I've heard it said suffering can be described as the terrible Ds. You know, things like disease and death, divorce and disappointment. And I know some of your stories. I know some of you right now your suffering means that you are on a first-name basis with doctors and nurses. They know who you are before you walk in the door. For some of you, right now, you are walking through the inconsolable grief of losing a life partner of 40, 50, 60 years. How do you go on? What do you do? Some of you are dealing with the, the tearing pain, the constant nagging agony of a deep relationship that's getting ripped apart. There's conflict. 
Some are dealing with disappointment. And these are just the stories in your life, in this beautiful little Disneyland called Fort Collins. And and you don't live in Syria. You don't live in Syria where people can hear the cries of their family buried in rubble, but they can't reach them, and they know they will die. Nothing in life is certain except suffering. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Now, if, if God wanted to teach us something about suffering, he could give us some simple answers, couldn't he? And isn't that what we want when we suffer? We want simple answers. It's so human, it's so natural when you suffer to ask those questions and want the answers. Why is there suffering in this world? Why? And and why does God allow it? And if he does allow it, is he really good? And if he's really good and he allows suffering, is he really in control? And more importantly, why am I suffering? I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. Why me? Why not the guy next to me? And if I could just understand why I'm suffering, if an angel would just tell me the exact reason, help me see it, why I'm suffering, then I could get through my suffering. Simple answers. Don't you want it? Wouldn't it be nice if the master teacher said, here's a one-page handout, it's an FAQ. These are frequently asked questions I get through prayer. And uh, they're listed by topic. Just examine them and I have all your answers. Go and suffer. That's not how he teaches us. No, 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 instead of simple answers to complicated issues, God taught us through a literary masterpiece. 42 chapters of the complicated, frustrating, agonizing, beautiful, reassuring, mysterious book of Job. That's how he chose to teach us. And there's perhaps no better book in the Bible to help us examine suffering than the book of Job. But it's not an easy book, is it? Everybody who read Job is going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. It's not an easy book, it's a challenging book. I'll give you five reasons why it's a challenging book. There's probably more, here's a few. (laughs) First of all, Job is a strange book to categorize, isn't it? What's the genre of Job? I mean, the Psalms I get, they're, they're songs, so it's poetry. And I know how to read poetry because it's poetry. And I know how to read an epistle because it's a letter. But the, the book of Job is a mixture of genres. It, it has narrative and prose in its prologue and epilogue. It has elements of, of poetry, long discourses of dialogue. It, it also has elements of proverbs and wisdom literature. So you, you can't just helicopter into any part of Job and know what kind of literature you're reading. That makes it difficult, doesn't it? It's a mixture of genres. But not only is it a mixture of genres, it's also long. It's just a long book and that makes it hard. 42 chapters long. If you're going through our 40 days of prayer, which excludes Sundays, I always have, that's like an asterisk. It excludes Sundays, 40 days of prayer through the 
season of Lent. So if you started today and read a chapter of day through Job, you'd make it. So if you wanna read the book of Job with us, that's how you could do it, chapter a day through our series. It's long, but not only is it long, it's repetitive, it's repetitive. If you've read Job, the whole middle section has these cycles of dialogue, poetic arguments from three friends who are saying essentially the same thing over and over and over. That's frustrating, that makes it challenging to preach through. And what's worse about the repetitious nature of their dialogue is that at the very end of the book, what does God say about everything those friends say? It sounds good. It sounded like good theology. It sounded like they were teaching something that's true. And in the end, God says, everything those friends said, garbage. Throw it out. Bad theology. Do you know what that means? That means you cannot just flip open to Job, pick a random verse from a chapter, and print it on a t-shirt. You can't. That, that would be misinterpreting the Bible badly. And what's so nuanced is what the friends are saying seems true. It's not far-fetched. What they're communicating is close. And in the end, God says it's wrong. This is a hard book. This is a hard book. We will spend six weeks preaching through 42 chapters. This summer, we're gonna spend 11 weeks preaching through five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. That doesn't seem fair. (laughs) Why? Why would we do that? I was so encouraged as our team built out this series. We're very intentional about this, and I got an amen from a brilliant scholar, so now I feel good about it. Tremper Longman III is a modern commentator. He's brilliant. He holds a degree from Yale. I don't. (laughs) And he was teaching to uh, future pastors about how to preach Job, and you know what his advice was? Don't go longer than six weeks. Yes, nailed it. Why, here's the final reason, here's why. Any section of Job is not a section like an epistle that you can take one idea and communicate that principle and let it stand on its own. This book must be interpreted in view of the whole book. So if we spend four years in Job, you're going to lose the forest and get stuck in the trees. So if there was ever a series, I say this all the time, if there was ever a series, if you send me an email or you wanna meet with me because you only listen to four out of six, you turn right back around and you listen to all six sermons and then come back. This series is meant to be listened together, please. So I implore you, you're, you're doing 40 days of prayer together, maybe commit to showing up to church for the next six weeks or at least listening online. You won't get it if you miss one. Six weeks, 42 chapters. This is a hard book. This is a hard book. If all those reasons weren't enough reasons to not preach Job, the subject itself is frankly just hard. We're going to talk about suffering for six weeks. We're going to wrestle with the sovereignty of God and his providence and his purposes. This is not easy. Hence, we should skip it. Right? Wouldn't that be better? I don't want to avoid hard things because they're hard, but I do want to warn us at the start of a series, 
Put your thinking caps on. Put your prayer knee pads on. And, and let's implore God to help us learn from this great book, why? Why would we preach Job? Because as we look at the landscape of what it means to be a Christian, especially here today, not only because of Jesus' promise, but because as we look at our, our world today, we know you will suffer, and I will too. And here's why we're preaching Job. We want to help produce a kind of people who when they suffer, they will worship and not curse God. That's what we want to produce. We want to produce a kind of people who when they suffer on their lips is sorrowful praise, not grumbling complaint. We want to produce a kind of people whose faith, when it's under fire, is strengthened and doesn't melt. That's why we're preaching Job. That's my prayer for you as we explore this. So let's look at the introduction to Job today under two headings that your faith may be strengthened under fire. Those headings are this. First, we're gonna look at the fruit of godliness. And second, I wanna examine the motivation for godliness. That's all we'll have time today. The fruit of godliness and the motivation for godliness. Open your Bibles, make sure you see the text with me in Job 1. If you're looking for Job, open the middle of your Bible, you'll hit the Psalms, and then just backtrack your way to Job. Job 1. Look at the text with me. What is the fruit of godliness? What's the fruit of godliness? Another way to ask this in very modern terms is, does living a good life lead to the good life? Is that true? I don't know, that seems pretty popular today. Does living a good life lead to the good life? What's the fruit of godliness? Verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was, as Craig Fortunato would say, Job. His name was Job. Uh, from verse one, we see this person, Job, is not an Israelite. He's living in Uz that's outside of the promised land, but he's heard of God, and he has submitted his life to him in a pretty radical way. So much so that this non-Israelite is described this way, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now hold on a second. Every reformed theologian, they've got their antenna up. They're going, what does that verse mean? And I wanna to know too. What does he mean by blameless? Without blame? Are you telling me that Job is sinless? Like, like perfect? Never, ever, not, a, not a single white lie? Really? Is that what this means? And so you've got to do a little study there. You've got to figure out, what does this phrase mean? And you look at that exact phrase, and you'll, you'll find two other examples that come even before it in Genesis. A couple other gentlemen have been described as blameless and upright. One of those was Abraham in Genesis 17, and another was Noah in Genesis 6-9. Now here's what I know about Noah. If Noah was blameless and upright enough that he could be spared on the earth from the flood and escape through an ark, 
and then immediately sin miserably, days after getting off the boat. (laughs) I know something to be true about Noah. He wasn't sinless. And neither was Abraham, who offered sacrifices. And neither, then, is Job. That, That can't be what this phrase means, else why would Job ever offer sacrifices? The sense that this phrase is trying to convey could be, in our English terms, I think a good translation could simply say, Job was a godly man. Very simply. Perfect? No. Without sin? No. Lest Job be the only man who didn't need Jesus. Right? But he was godly. He was godly. Blameless and upright, and this is critical for understanding the whole tension of the book, because Job is not just about a bad guy who suffers for doing bad things. Job is about a really good guy who suffers really badly. That's the tension. Godly but not perfect. What is the fruit then of this godliness? What's the fruit? What's the result of living a good life? In other words, does being a good guy lead to the good life? It certainly seems in Job. Check out this life. Try this on. See if you enjoy this. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. The author is using perfect numbers in that culture. Seven and three were were like communicating completeness. This is awesome. This is the best family. He's got the Christmas card photo that you get in the mail and you just roll your eyes and you throw it. You're like, oh, they're always perfect. Ah, perfect family. But not only that, he's got a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff. Perfect numbers, again, he possesses 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500, we're we're talking 10,000 head of candle. I I know a friend who owns like three head of cattle, and they're expensive, (laughs) 10,000. Not only is he wealthy, not only does he have a great family, it says he was the greatest of all people in the East, verse three, greatest. Reputation, the best. Does that sound like the good life? I'll take a slice of that. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Not only was he righteous, he was so righteous that even when his children hold feasts, just in case one of them might curse God with their mouth, he would go and offer sacrifices on their behalf. There's some great irony that's set up here. The the whole test of Job is will Job curse God. Satan says he will. His wife even gives up on him and says, just die, Job, and curse God. Great partner, great life partner. And in the end, Job never curses him. And there's another irony here. He intercedes for his children as a mediator. And in the end, his friends will try to tell him that he was wrong. But in the very, very end, God will say, now you're going to mediate for your friends. Go and pray for them. Be their mediator. Awesome irony, just from the very beginning. Does living a good life lead to the good life? It seems that other scriptures indicate this as well, don't they? Uh, You go to a lot of places. Uh, The Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Or, or Psalm 112. Psalm 112 is a great place. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Blessed. There it is, right there. Fear God, live a godly life, you'll be blessed. It's not for no reason <laughs> that the Bible says that living according to his ways leads to blessing. But here's the trouble. Here's the trouble. That living a God life leads to blessing is a principle, not a promise. Oh, that tweak gets us in a world of trouble. Now, when I say blessing, I mean the kinds of blessing in Job 1. I'm not talking about eternal blessing. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. All right, there's eternal blessings. Those are guaranteed. But earthly blessing, like health, family, wealth, status, is a principle in this life, not a promise. Not a promise. We get in a world of hurt when we twist that. Let me illustrate in another way, and this is where genre comes into play. It's so important in the book of Job. This is like wisdom literature, much like the book of Proverbs. If you look at the Proverbs and you take those as promises, you're gonna be an angry person. You get frustrated. One example, I'm a dad, so this one rings true for me. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Promise. I want that to be a promise. Do you know why? Because I want to be in control. If I do X, children, it's good to be honest, and I'll teach you your whole life, be honest. And then I result in Y. They grow up and leave the house and they cheat on their taxes. I told you to be honest. And the Bible promised me it would work. I'm mad. God, you told me, train up a child in the way they would go, and they didn't. Principle, not promise. It's not, it's, I should do X. I should train them. And yes, generally as a principle of life in wisdom, they tend to remain in the way that you teach them when they're young. But it's not a promise. Simple answers for complicated life doesn't work. God didn't give us an FAQ on suffering. And he didn't give us an FAQ on parenting either. Principle, not a promise. Let me illustrate why this is so important. You twist that, you twist the Bible into a promise when it's not meant to be a promise, you get a positive result and a negative result. I'll illustrate two ways. You take that, that principle um, positively, that this is just a promise, that if you live a good life, you'll have the good life. That's how we land at the prosperity gospel. Is it not? Come on, church, bring your ties in. If you give X amount of dollars today, you'll get X amount back. Principle, not a promise. Not a promise. We're not, we're not running a credit card commercial here telling you that. However, the Bible does say, if you live generously, there's blessing. There's blessing but it's a principle. It's not a promise. Do you see how that gets twisted? You take it the negative way, and that's the rest of book, the book of Job. If you live a bad life, you'll suffer. That is the argument of all three of Job's friends. 
They're stuck in this simple cause and effect worldview and they can't get out of it. They can't conceive of anything more complex than cause and effect. So for chapter after chapter, Job's friends are telling him, Job, I know you're saying you're godly, but you're not. If you're suffering this bad, you've got a secret sin. It's really bad and you need to repent of it because cause and effect. Bad people suffer badly, but good people don't. This is why this is important. Principle, not a promise. Do you see how twisted that gets? Clear from the beginning. Yes, <laughs> yes, living a godly life can lead to a good life, but it's a principle. It's not a promise. This is the fruit of godliness. Have you lived this way? Have you subtly allowed a a view of God's word as a promise when it's just a principle to destroy your life? <laughs> you frustrated? Come on, God, I've, I have attended most Sundays. I got here in a snowstorm. And my neighbor, who's totally a bad person, I mean, on every account, just evil, <laughs> he makes more money, he drives a Tesla. He's got kids. Ugh. Have you had this happen in your life? And conversely, if you're suffering, have you felt like, oh man, I just haven't had enough faith? If I would just pray better, maybe I wouldn't suffer. If I'd just be a better person, I wouldn't have to suffer in this life. Okay, it's getting real. This is the fruit of godliness. Have you made this error? Second and finally, what's the motivation for godliness? What's the motivation for godliness? This is the key question of the entire book of Job. It's not the fruit, it's the motivation. Look at the text with me in verse nine in the next section. Starting in verse six, an amazing thing happens. Satan and God are having a conversation in heaven nerd out in a commentary to explain more of that, or we'll save that for Dale next week. Thank you, Dale. <laughs> Thank you, Dale. I wanna to get to verse nine. Verse nine. This is the key question. <laughs> God looks at Job, tells Satan, isn't he a great guy? Isn't he a trophy of godliness? And, Job asks, or, and uh, Satan asks a very cynical question of Job. Verse nine. Does Job fear God for no reason? Oh, this is a cynical question. Oh, sinister. Do you see what Satan's doing? God, he, he does not fear you for no reason. You've put a hedge around him. He's healthy. Every physical he gets annually, clear bill of health. And he's got kids who are godly and love you. This singer praises, he's got reputation. He's got 10,000 cattle. He doesn't love you. He loves your stuff. Take the stuff away, he'll curse you. 
Oh, what a cynical question. Do you see what he does? He questions the motive of Job's godliness and he's subtly questioning God's worth. God, people don't follow you because you're great. They follow you because of the stuff you give. You're a vending machine, God, and I'll prove it. Ooh, oh, we got a battle. <laughs> we, we got a rumble in heaven. Satan is cynical and a lot's at stake. This, this question, does Job fear God for no reason? In, in our modern culture and context, we take the word fear and it has a very narrow definition. We take it even as a bad thing, perhaps. To fear God is to be afraid of him and to cower. And there is an element of that in the phrase fear God. But in the Old Testament, in that culture, the phrase to fear God was a much more positive term. It had a very wide range of meaning. To fear God was to have an awe-inspiring reverence for God, a respect, an esteem one in which you would submit your life to him. A, a modern word that I think would be fair for us to say, you could, you could put the word love in place of fear and it would communicate a central idea of this word. Does Job love God for no reason? Or does Job just love the stuff you give him? Take away the stuff and I'll show you, he doesn't love you, God. Do you love God for who he is or for what he gives? That's the question at the beginning of Job. Do you love God for who he is or simply what he gives? You've experienced this in relationships, haven't you? Because we're sinful and fallen. This happens in human relationships. Have you ever done this or been on the receiving end of someone who treats you nicely, they're godly, but they don't love you. They just want something from you. I mean, this is tragic in friendships or marriages. Maybe you've, you've tasted it at one of those network meetings. You got a career, have you ever been to a network meeting? All smiles, lots of smiles. Very nice to meet you. You seem like an interesting person. Aren't, aren't you great? They don't think you're great. This is networking. They want something from you. <laughs> they want to use you. This is the question that Job is asked by Satan. Do you love God for who he is or what he gives? The rest of this series will answer that question. We'll wait and see. So ask yourself the question, do you fear God for no reason? Do you, do you show up to church because you get God? Or do you show up to church because you get credit that bumps up your esteem in the community? You seem like a good person. Do you love God for who he is or what he Gives. This is the question that I'm inviting you today. I'm not answering, just like the, the prologue. I want to invite you to wrestle with the question of what is the foundation of your faith built on? Is it a love for God or a love for things? Do you fear God for no reason?
I want to invite you throughout this series to probe this question. Job was a man who had much. He had a lot. And he lost almost everything except his health, or his life, really. He lost his health, but his life. He had had much, he lost almost everything, and yet he still had God in the end. But there was another man who came to earth who had everything in the glory of heaven. Everything. And he gave all that up to lose not just his possessions or his health, but his life itself. He died. Real death. And he took all the weight of the sins of the world, though he was not just blameless and upright, but actually perfect and sinless. This Jesus took that. And in doing so, he showed the world the infinite worth of God. Oh, if he would give up everything, how valuable is this God the Father? And how great is his love for us that he'd be willing to give up all of that. He still has God, and he has his treasure, his people. This is Christ and what he's done. Jesus was a a master teacher. You've heard it said that nothing in life is certain except death and taxes, but Jesus says to you almost nothing in life is more certain than suffering. In this world you have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus was such a brilliant teacher, he once told a story about two men who built each a house. On the outside, these houses looked identical. Same house. And on a a calm day of life, like a Fort Collins day, sunny, calm, the houses seemed to function exactly the same. Front door opens, kept them warm. By all accounts, the appearances on the outside said these two houses are identical. But then a storm came. The storms of life came. And they revealed these two homes were utterly different. One stood, the other fell. And the only difference was what they were built on. One was built on a foundation of rock, and another was sand. In Job, this series, I'm inviting you to examine the foundation of your life. Have you built your life on sand? And when suffering comes, will your life come crumbling down? Or have you built your life on rock such that no suffering this life could provide, not job loss or death or even an earthquake in Syria, could remove your love for the one you treasure most, God himself. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard series as we examine the the challenging and difficult concept of suffering, Lord. Father, we want to submit ourselves under you, trust that you know what you're doing, that you gave us this book 
for a very good and purposeful reason. And now we want to we dig deep into it to mine out the principles and truths for our lives that by your spirit we might become a people who have lives built on Christ, who can withstand storms and not just grit our teeth through suffering and endure it, but with tears streaming down our face with sorrow, we might even praise you and worship you. So come, Father, make, make your glory real and evident and valuable in our hearts. And Christ, show yourself to be our greatest treasure now as we examine the foundation of our faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.